The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Uh, my guest this week is Guy Montgomery, uh, who is a stand-up comic. You've probably heard of him. Uh, and he's now the host, showrunner, creator of Guy Mont's uh, Spelling Bee, which is a, a sort of like a, a panel show, hour-long, very broad, plays at 7.30pm, That he sort of came up with during lockdown has now become a, uh, a TV show, uh, but also has, has a lot more legs. So those are the sort of two strands of his current career, but I sort of known guy for probably about 10 years. I, I wrote a feature about the worst idea of all time, the podcast that he did with Tim Bat, where they watched, uh, grownups too every week for seemingly years uh, and I've always found him a very sort of original and, and funny uh, comedian. Not, not you know, <laughs> that, that should be a prereq for, for being a comic, but as he sort of talks about, sometimes other things can get in the way. Um, but uh, but and I, saw, I saw his first show at the basement, and I just, I just thought he really had something. And so it's been cool to kind of watch his career develop over the years, him to... You know, as he talks quite candidly in this podcast about him basically being a, hugely indebted to Reese Darby's uh, character from Flight of the Concords to Murray um, in his early years, shall we say, and then just sort of gradually figuring out who he is. And I think, you know, I, I saw uh, My Mind Is Blowing Me Crazy, his, his most recent hour at the Rangatira Room at Q Theatre, 450 people, and he was just kind of effortless he, he just really knows who he is right now and I think between that and spelling be you know a lot of that hard doubt filled just really just grindy um part of being a creator being a comic whether it, or, you know it's any kind of creative whether you know musician director writer it's it's you're just it's really hard to kind of push through those, those early years unless you're you know, Lord, and it just happens, not that it just happens, but, you know, like it, it, it comes at you very quickly. For most people, it, it involves a lot of pushing through that and to sort of have him be on the other side and reflecting on his path there um, is, is what I think we get out of this. So talk about the genesis of Spelling Bee, talk about the Melbourne Comedy Festival, the pivotal role that's played in his uh, development um, and... And then really sort of dig into how spelling bee sort of was made and 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 where it might go. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's a really fun chat with a person who I, I really respect and and admire and who is just really funny. Uh, maybe not so much on this podcast, but in general. Uh, so yeah, this is Guy Montgomery on the fold. Kilda Guy, 
Welcome to the fold. Yoda Duncan, welcome to the fold. <laughs> oh no, it's going to be like that. <laughs> no, no, it's going to be good. Um, hey, so congratulations on your on your your show. My mind is blowing me crazy. Yes, thank you. Uh, two things stood out about it for me. What what the first is kind of fairly prosaic, and that it's just it was it was it just glided along like you mm. you know these jokes and you you can kind of inhabit them, um, which was which felt like a real treat. The second was. Like, I feel like I've watched you and particularly your generation do a lot of very kind of high concept uh, shows over the last sort of decade or so. So it was almost jarring to see someone come out with just like jeans, T-shirts, some jokes and a spotlight and just be comfortable with that. Like, well, what's what, what's yeah, well, what's going on there? Oh, um, so that's called stand up comedy, Duncan. And it's a, an exciting mm. new medium. <laughs> OK, uh, OK. But I mean... I actually remember you came to my first, the first solo show I did, which was called Guy Montgomery Presents a Succinct and Concise Summary of How He Feels About Certain Things. And I don't know that we knew, I don't know that we knew each other. You sent me a DM on Twitter that was um, complimentary and I was very grateful. And that was just stand up. And in the intervening years, so this is, I think this is my, this would be my eighth solo show I've just done. But, um, I sort of went off track a little bit uh, to, you know, to, to, to play around and see what else I could do. A lot of that was inspired by watching Sam Campbell in Australia, who's a fantastic Australian comic. He's won the Melbourne Comedy Award, the Edinburgh Comedy Award, and he's on the, he's on the new, just announced on the 16th season of Taskmaster. But he's, um, he's sort of, you know, he's a generational talent. And so he's sort of, I think his influence reached after a bunch of us snort first went over to the Melbourne Comedy Festival a lot of people were like oh wow it can be anything and so I came back and played around with that a little bit and then uh the longer I've been going the more I've been like you know other people are there's a lot more incorporation of multimedia and sort of character elements and other things and um the draw or the pull for me has just been back to doing stand-up I love um, I love the setup. I love that I can like I could walk out of this room and onto the stage and just do my job and walk off. Like I like that you can show up to work with just a phone and your wallet and keys in your pockets and take them out and then you can do it. I like I don't have to clean anything up after the show. And um it's something I've worked really hard to get really good at and I like that I'm really good at it and I like being able to to share that and to like to show people that. Yeah, there was this kind of confidence, I guess, about it, about it both just presentationally and just the, the whole show. Like you, you know, like you, you sort of know who you are as a comic at this point yeah. in your career. There's definitely um, that just comes with time. I think that's true of any creative pursuit uh, where you do settle into your voice, and naturally, when you start, you you know, there's a I can't even remember who wrote it. There's a fight on, you know that. That it's P H A I D O N. They publish nice books. Big, big fancy books. Like yeah, and some, and those, some little, some little ones too. Some little fancy books. And there's one called Steal Like an Artist. And I sort of read it after I'd started doing it. But basically, it's like when you're starting, you're just pulling from every single influence and resource you can to try and forge your own voice through it. So when I first started, I was in um, Canada, and I was basically this was not long after Concords had blown up, and I was I was writing my own jokes, which weren't very good, but I was performing them essentially as Reese Darby, which <laughs> which delivered a certain uh, confidence or persuasiveness to the audience that sort of tricked them into being like, oh yeah, this guy sort of has something, and especially because I was a New Zealander in Canada, 
you know, there's That's some, the only cultural reference yeah. point apart from Lord of the Rings. That's right. At the time, it was right in the zeitgeist. So, you know, they probably just thought this is how New Zealanders are. And so, but through the years, you know, I've, I've stolen from uh, like Peter Cook and Norm MacDonald and sort of, it's not a hugely disparate resource pool. It's just basically fellas I find funny. And through all of that with time uh, has emerged, a, a, I think, a, a stronger sense of self on stage. I wouldn't be able to describe it in a sentence, but I think I can just sort of, you know, my goal has always been to be able to say a sentence with nothing funny in it and make people laugh. I think you achieved that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a few times. Were you conscious of... Because that Reese Darby thing, like I never watched Concords still to this wow. day. Yeah, I mean, or I did, but I, I sort of, I basically took an instinctive dislike to the Reese Darby character. Sorry yeah. if you somehow have the misfortune of listening to this, Reese. It's not personal. It's just the character grated on me. Mm. Were you were you aware that you were doing that? Like, I, to an extent, yes. Um, I mean, you know, it's not just the voice in terms of the your comedic identity that I was finding. It's also the physical voice with which I would speak on stage. That has taken a long time to even really get closer to my actual speaking voice. And that's not, I'm not in total control of that. You know, like it would modulate, if I was nervous, it would modulate, you know. But get racier. Yeah. And uh, with time, it's sort of flattened out and become more of my own voice. But also, you know, and then there's things like, Norm MacDonald has a very folksy sort of rhythm and there's a few words. He obviously knows how to pronounce all the words, but sort of just, <laughs> you know, mispronounces a few words. And so like taking parts of that and sort of Frankensteining this own, my own version, of, you know, like the more you overlay all these influences, the more your own voice will emerge. So long as you are working hard and keep pushing forwards, your voice will emerge through it all. And so... I mean, it is, it's gratifying to hear you be like, oh, you know, it feels like you've got a sense of comic identity because I, I feel like I do and I feel like um, I've worked for it. Well, and, and I, I also think people now know exactly what they're going to get when they go to a Guy Mont show mm. and, and there's like a lot of them now. I mean, you, you, you were selling out Rangatira, which is a big room, mm. you know, like, what, 450-odd yeah. people and... I mean, just in terms of the technical elements of it, like how do you, how does that work? Like, do you, do you book that and just hope, or do you have some kind of data that that tells uh, you you're you're good to go with that? Like, it's, uh, is there a science there? There's a a little bit of everything, but mostly I have a fantastic manager now, who's an Australian woman named Beck, um, and she sort of is very good at. Uh, push it, you know, pushing her clients, in this case, me, uh, and sort of being like, I think this is what we're capable of. If you're, com you know, I have confidence that we can do this if you want to pursue it. And nearly always I'll say yes. Um, so it's, it is, it's, you know, you're, you're trying to, trying to grow all the time and grow your audience. Um, and it does feel now, it's interesting in New Zealand, it's been a bit stop starty because of, uh, there was a pandemic the last I, couple I of years so. and there was like no festival last year, but there was a festival the year before, but there was no festival the year before that. And so to get a through line of audience growth has been challenging. Um, and even with the festival the year before, you wouldn't have had international. So no. like it's, it's been a while since we yeah. had a normal one. And, you know, so it's, and also, I mean, there's a, there is a, I think the there's a massive like, Going out to watch a show is a luxury right now in New Zealand. And so 
that sort of is a, a challenge. But that's all ancillary to the question you asked, which is like, is there a science behind it? To an extent, there's, there is. Uh, you probably will, will try and book yourself into a room that feels like it might be a little bit too big. Uh, in this case, I've done Rangatira before, but I hadn't done four nights. And so that was the new, the new challenge. Um, and it worked. So, so yeah, so congratulations on that. And, and it was kind of capped off this, like, r quite a great run of shows for you, I think. Yeah. Um, between Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide. Let's talk about Beck, because, uh, you know, it does feel like having go good management that sort of gets you and can plan for you can be quite transformative for mm. any kind of, you know, any of the solo creative pursuits, yeah. I guess. Well, she occupies a, a, an unusual space across... Australia maybe less so because everything's a little bit there's just it's bigger they're a little bit more advanced over there but um you know she is she's filling a need I think in for New Zealand stand-up comedians specifically who's like want to look at live performance as a bread and butter or primary source of income and they're you know their their most strident creative pursuit there's no uh there's Notorious Comedy Management, which is a guy called Richard Carrington, which has been around in New Zealand for a long time, and he represents a lot of the generation above my comics. Uh, but in terms of, like, looking at Australia and New Zealand as one market or place that you can develop and grow an audience, and um, also someone... I mean, I've not, I've, I can't reflect on working with, you know, other managers who I haven't worked with, but in terms of, like, the relationship between... Her and me is like, um, she's just so she's just so good, you know. And I, I also, to my credit, have become so good as a comedian. And so, when we work in uh, tandem, we are both so good. And that, you know, it makes almost I don't know if it creates something greater than the sum of its parts, but it means that there's there's no, like no one has had the vision to sort of um, or just the confidence maybe to to encourage me and, you know, some of our other clients to do what she's telling us we can do and helping us do. And she, you know, like she does, Ursula, Ursula Carlson was her first big client. And Ursula Carlson, I don't know if you've had her on the podcast, but she's um, as a stand-up comedian in New Zealand. She's like the dream mo business model. Like she is a monster. And, you know, if you, you look to someone like that and you think, wow, that's actually, that's feasible. I don't think I'll ever get to that scale, but it's like I can, you know, I can subsist entirely just from doing stand-up comedy and then pick and choose the other parts of the career that I want. So, so because I think people in New Zealand, you know, Ursula is she's obviously very prominent. She's got a Netflix special, all the rest of it. But I, I mean, she, it almost feels like she's bigger in Australia than she is in New Zealand. Well, yeah, she. I mean, you, because you can be like she's. She plays. She'll go to, in Australia. She'll tour. She'll perform basically the biggest room in any major centre in Australia every year. It just doesn't feel like it's particularly well understood here. That no, she has just owned that, and and I guess that creates this sort of path that you can kind of you can sort of study the steps. Like how much of you are how much are you a student of the the sort of comedy game and watch observe the way that other people kind of construct their careers, I suppose. I I think if you've been doing it long enough, inevitably, you you, you know, like it's it's not the reason why anyone starts, but once you've been going and you're like, how do I make this sustainable? How do I support a family doing this or whatever? You do start to, um, 
look to other comedians and it doesn't even, they don't even need to be creative inspirations or like, you know, perfectly simpatico in terms of comedic style, but just like, how do you, how do you build a sustainable career out of this? And you do wind up sort of like, you know, like I say, she is the, I would, I would say the goal, the standard bearer for what you could achieve in this part of the world by doing stand up. Um, I think at the same time, you look at other comedians who maybe you think are the fun, you know, like it's a funny thing as a, as a, an industry, there'll be people you're friends with or comics you think are the funniest comedians in the world. And they sort of, they stagnate or like their career doesn't get turbocharged the way that you think it should, or some of them probably feel is due. And it's not a total meritocracy. Like it's, it's not always fair, but some of those, you know, it is also, the longer you're around, the more that you beyond the comedy and making friends and trying to be funny, the more you do notice like the um, the grisly bits of the industry or like if you're chopping it open and looking at the, the nerve center of how it all functions. And I don't really have a, a deep understanding of that. I have, as it relates to me, a cursory, enough of an understanding to know what I want to do and how it works. Um, I mean, for me, my goal was always to be fun. Like, you know, it's, it's obviously... the. Uh, Beyond being funny, the goal is to be able to sustain yourself from doing stand-up comedy. But across all the facets of my career, the dream has always been, and this is what makes working with Beck such a delight, and be, having management that pushes you and takes care of so much of the, like, the grinding administrative parts, which is not why anyone gets into the industry, and especially in New Zealand, is just a forced fact of working inside of comedy, is um, I've just wanted to show up and be funny the whole time. And so the closer I get to that creative ideal, the more I feel like it frees you to actually be able to, to, to reach for new heights creatively. So, and how much of, you know, like, because one of the things that, um, you know, we've talked about is the, is the extent to which, you know, appearing on certain shows mm. uh, can have... A, you know, is almost like the biggest single driver of being able to kind of move up a level, yeah. move up a venue size and kind of change your relationship to to particularly sort of your the away crowd, if yeah. you if you will. Like, you know, how, how do you how do you first get on those bills and, and what 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 is it that gets you kind of into that rotation, gets you to gets you sticky? Uh so you're talking about television shows, sort oh, yeah. of, and the yeah. So in New Zealand, the the, the at least watching co comedians before I did it, the most obvious show that would blood new stars was Seven Days, and like you could see the correlation between appearing or being funny on Seven Days. Before that was the comedy gala, and you know your ability to sell tickets in rural or regional New Zealand, um, and Seven Days still holds this sort of hallowed. Uh, space, I think, especially for up-and-coming comedians. But, you know, to, to do it is like you're welcomed into this, um, you know, this institution essentially that a lot a lot of us grew up watching. And even now, you know, the, the generation, like I'd say there's probably two younger generations of comics who are coming through as the next wave of pros. And even the second, so two generations down are getting on it. And you can see it still means something to them, even though, and it's still a great show, but even though I think it's the, the cultural value or in terms of the real life audience value has, has been diluted significantly just because people watch TV differently. In Australia, um, I started doing, have you been paying attention? There was, a, there, there was, is a New Zealand version of that, um, which doesn't quite have the same cachet, but in Australia, this is started by working dog who are the production company who did the castle. They did, uh, thank God you're here. 
They did the dish. They've made. They're responsible for a lot of very utopia, a lot of very influential mm. um, Australian comedy, TV, and film. Uh, so they started having paying attention, and that because Australia's what's Australia's population? Do you reckon forty million? Twenty. Twenty. Twenty-five, yeah, surely. I'd I say twenty-seven. Would you go twenty-seven? I reckon twenty-seven. What do you? I'll say twenty-seven. I, I, I think 5. I'm going to go twenty-two. Twenty-two? Yeah, I think it might be around twenty-seven combined. I hear. Twenty-five. You in twenty-two? I'm, yeah, I'm going to hand that to you. Yeah. yeah, but we, I mean, we did well between us. We were really drilled well, into well, it. Yeah, well, your forty was a bit off. That was crazy. But I just say something to get the conversation rolling. So, there's enough people there who are still watching terrestrial television the way that it was designed, and have been paying attention. Is uh, I haven't really experienced anything like that until I'd done it. But it appears to be. Um, I don't know if it's population density or what, but it has a hold on Australian comedy fans and live comedy goers. That means I went to Adelaide for the first time in my life this year and, you know, I was performing. I was only in a 90-seat room, but it was full. But nice. I mean, that you know, to go to a city that you've literally never yeah, set yeah. foot in and be able to sell exactly. how many nights? Uh, Five uh, nights, six nights. So, you know, you're talking about over 500 people. Yeah. That's right. And so, and a lot of, you know, and my audience traditionally look like me. Um, and it's Chris Parker described my audience as people, guys who look like me and their girlfriends. <laughs> uh, and that was certainly peppered through the audience, but also I could see a lot of silver tops, I'd call them. Uh, you know, your, your, your boomers, your traditional television watching audience were coming out to the show. And I can only assume that they didn't find me because of my dumb podcast or because I post things on social media. Like, they found me the that traditional is a linear route. television yeah. audience, and you know that uh, you can feel like I. It's very, it's crazy now to go to Australia and walk out on a stage at lineup shows or to your own show and feel like you're not introducing yourself to these people. These people know who they've come to see, and there is a difference, I think, with that television audience who are just coming because they've seen you make uh, jokes on a topical panel show, and then they're being introduced to you as a stand-up. And, you know, not all of those people are going to stick around or come to the next show because they're like, oh, I thought it would be like this. It's like that. That's not for me. But that's actually great. You almost don't want to, you don't want to compromise your comedic voice in any way for the, you know, for the people you've hoovered up along the way because then you lose your way a little bit. You want yeah, to, you want to be leading them rather yeah, than you want, you want You want, like, you know, 40% of those people to go, I actually didn't like that and piss <laughs> off because, you know. I, if if they if they don't like what you want to do, that's fine. That's you know that's up to them. The fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. With over four thousand out of home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres, I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Raising capital or taking your business to the world. Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Yeah, you, you did Adelaide, you did did Sydney, but the the heart of Australian comedy, where it feels like it has almost like a the the scale of comedy's relationship to Melbourne is is just different to mm. yeah. uh, to 
well, it's almost hard to to imagine that, if you haven't been there to the extent to which it just sort of soaks the city. Yeah, that that festival, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, is like it's baked into the Melbourne Australian almost cultural calendar, and so it's um the difference with New Zealand. I think where in New Zealand there'll be huge, you know, like if you you could go into the central city during the comedy, the New Zealand International Comedy Festival, and still not know that there's a comedy festival happening in Melbourne. That is. I would say impossible to to travel into the epicenter of where the festival's happening and not know that it's going on. And people are travelling to Melbourne from around Australia to go to it. They're they're packing out, you know, a week's worth of shows. They're like they plan, you know, a, a yearly trip to Melbourne around this festival. It is um I think it's the in the three biggest the three biggest comedy festivals in the world are the Edinburgh Fringe, which is obviously open access but also becoming exorbitant like impossibly expensive, especially well, for, for everyone, but especially from New Zealand, it no longer feels like a necessarily sensible or logical choice to go over and try it. Uh, Just for Laughs in Montreal, which is like a legacy brand name festival that is invitation only. And then the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which is um, like the scale of anything and the best comedians from all around the world will come and do their shows there as well. And so you're, you know, you're competing in a market and performing alongside and meeting with these people and... Melbourne's got a population of 5 million people. It's the same size as New Zealand. So it's like, it's amazing. And it's a very cultured city to begin with. So it's, it's yeah. like if the whole population of New Zealand was like Wellingtonians. Exactly. And the infrastructure of the city means that everything funnels into the middle. And so people, are at, like, it's not, um, it's not a logistical nightmare to be like, I would like to go to a show tonight. You could, impo- you know, like in <laughs> Auckland, it's very difficult to impulsively decide to go and watch a show in the central city one night because you have to account for parking or Ubering from wherever you are and like all these very unbecoming and inconvenient uh, hurdles or obstacles. In Melbourne, like you could just, someone could be like, I'm going to this tonight and it's a lot easier to say yes along the way to wind up at that show. So what... Do you want to just go into a bit more detail about how it's different? Like, for example, in, in New Zealand, you typically play, play four or five nights, yeah. right? Whereas Melbourne, it's much longer it's, runs. Yeah. And you can kind of build an audience or, or word of mouth has a much greater it's, power. Yeah. It's a, it's a sort of, I don't know how to describe it. It's not an impossible problem to solve for New Zealand, but the difference in Melbourne is because of the length of the festival and the density of population, Word of mouth actually functions as a marketing tool in a way that there is not enough run-up in New Zealand for it to work. So you do 22 shows. You go over there. Uh, I can't remember. You go over whenever and you do shows. Monday's off, basically. So Tuesday through Saturday, you do the show at, say, 8 o'clock. And then Sundays, all the shows move an hour earlier. So you do the same show at an hour before whatever made-up time I just said. And then on Monday, you wouldn't do anything. And there, there'll be shows that are on a Monday. but um, And so you are... I mean, first of all, the audience has an opportunity to grow and people who come and enjoy the show have the chance to tell people and they can plan however far out to come and see you. Also, the show gets to grow so much and you get to grow so much as a performer. Like, you become so sharp and, like, you're constantly, even if you're not actively sitting down and listening to the show and, like, rewriting certain jokes, just by repeating it, the the muscle memory and the practice of saying it over and over again, you're refining everything. You're like, there's not a laugh here, there's a lag here. And you so you just pull that chunk out or whatever and, you know, a new joke will blossom in its place. It's just, um, it, the, in terms of, you know, both creatively and audience-wise, the opportunity for growth and the way that it functions is just, it's it, the scale is just, it's completely different. It's, um, 
you know. And you go to Sydney Comedy Festival afterwards, and that's so much more like the New Zealand Comedy Festival. It's really, it's like um, a lot of people in Sydney don't know what's happening. It's like you're in Sydney at the same time as some of your friends who are also doing comedy shows. And it's, what happens in Melbourne is very unique and um, sort of indigenous to Melbourne in terms of the way that comedy festivals function around this part of the world. So, I mean, what, along with your show, you also did a live version of Spelling Bee, which has yeah. become, I mean, I'd really like to kind of drill into that because it, it feels like, you know, you, you've got this track with your, with your career doing, doing stand-up that's working out very well for you. And then there's this new thing over here which really doesn't have a defined ceiling. Could be a quirky little couple of seasons or it could be something a lot more than that. Uh, first off, just tell me about the genesis of the show. Yeah. Uh, so it was during uh, the lockdown, the first lockdown from the aforementioned pandemic, um, and obviously all of the comedy festivals had been wiped out. I'd just moved home to New Zealand from New York, uh, not knowing that we were going to be inside for a year. Uh, and so it was quite, you know, the, the, the lifestyle change for everyone, but also, you know, measured up against what I was imagining for the year was quite dramatically different. And I was sort of trying to think of a way to entertain myself. People were doing a lot of online pub quizzes, uh, which almost satisfied you know, both the social and comedic need. Like, you know, it was, uh, there was a period, I don't know if you remember, where having a beer with your friends on Friday on Zoom was almost fulfilling. Yeah, I, it was, I, I, I haven't actually thought about that since then, and it's kind of giving me quite a queasy feeling, yeah. the extent to which I was excited about That's that. That's right. You know, obviously I had, I terrible mean, experience. My, two of my best friends, Ken and Joe, we had a, a, a thread. It was essentially like a mental health service we were providing for each other. It was called Don't Talk To Me. And every day we'd have a coffee at the same time um, on, you know, whatever, on WhatsApp or FaceTime or whatever. And each day it would be one of our turn to host in a cafe. You know, you'd host the cafe and you'd give the cafe a name and stuff. And so you, everyone was finding ways basically to, to, to get through and maintain social connection and not like lose their minds and kill their families. And um, I was trying to think of a, sh a show or something I could do, you know, that was uh, something I instinctively loved and also that would, wow, I, don't, I, sh I, I you know, I could recast the memory entirely because I don't remember the particulars. Truth be told, Duncan, I was stoned and alone and uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of something to do. And so I started being like, well, I could have a spelling bee because in spelling bees, you know, like I, um, there's a lot of opportunity for comedy in spelling because in a spelling bee and like the Scripps National Spelling Bee, you can ask for a language of origin, a uh, definition and to hear the word in a sentence. And, you know, every one of those, is, every one of those, a there's a, yeah, there's three joke opportunities off just off of the word. And so I thought, Okay, I'll, what I'll do is I get some people from Snort. So Snort, we're having occasional catch-ups on Zoom. And I said to some friends in Snort, I said, hey, I would love to host a spelling bee with some of you guys. Um, we'll just get together and I'll, I'll host a spelling bee and we'll go through it. And so I did that. And then I did it again and sort of tweaked it and refined it a little bit. And then I thought, this is like, this is, you, I could put this on YouTube. I don't know who's going to watch it, but I could host one of these on YouTube and see if people watch it. 
and it was quite a nice thing to anchor my week around. It like gave you know it gave me some sense of, um, I don't want to say purpose, but it did fill a day. There was just a kind of everything. There there was no. There was no weekends. There no. Was, it was just this big blob. And there was also inside of, you know, the, the most ambitious part of my brain was like there was a scale inside of it. I never thought about it beyond, um, you know, I thought we might just all be inside forever. But I was like everyone around the world is inside. And I've got friends who are comedians in New York. I've got friends who are comedians in Los Angeles, in London, in Toronto. I've got friends who are comedians in Mumbai, you know, and Australia and here. And I had this vision where I was like, no, there's no show either pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, or podcast that is truly global that pulls together, like you know, that curates this lineup of phenomenal, like the funniest comedian from the UK alongside someone who you think would be complimentary from America, from Australia and New Zealand. And so the, I had this long, long-term, or not inside of the pandemic, this long-term vision of being like, I have connections. I'm it's friends. Like an Olympics of comedy, yeah. kind of. And I'm friends with enough of these people that I could, and all of them are at home doing nothing. Like yeah. all of them would be grateful for the chance to hang out, be funny, meet a new person, and also have a, you know, like a, a, some sort of performance element. Not every comedian missed that. But um, so that was, the, that was the vision. I started off doing it with New Zealand comics, my friends who are here, and then started folding in Australian comics because in terms of time difference, it was easier. And then started reaching out as far as like American comics and had started booking as far ahead as getting like UK comics and sort of was starting to do this. And then I think I made six of them and George Floyd got murdered in America and then the Black Lives Matter movement exploded and it suddenly felt very odd. It felt, I don't know if you remember how like centralised, it sort of the diaspora of like pop culture and cultural conversation now is so far reaching, but I don't know if you remember at that period, it was like, we were all on one, on one thing. And yeah. so it, all of a sudden it felt very uh, uncomfortable and sort of wrong for me to be like, you know, inside of this, this massive social justice movement and protest for me to be like, and would anyone like to watch me um, get these comedians to spell some words? And so, yeah, absolutely. I, pulled, absolutely. I, I just, I stopped doing it and, um, but it was fun. And then I think at the end of that year, New Zealand had a very unusual lockdown cycle, but we were out of lockdown. I thought, do you know what? That's actually a really cool idea. I'm going to mount that as a live show. So I did five nights or something in a row at the basement studio. And the idea was that I'd do four nights and the winner of each night would then compete on the final night. We'd have like a, a grand final. But because of availability or whatever, how it worked out, it didn't work. It was just five different nights of spelling. Um, and... So then I thought, okay, this is either a podcast or a TV show, but this has legs that are greater than just being this live show. Because it's quite interesting, right? Because in my mind, looking at where it is now and, and sort of starting to imagine what it might be, it has to be the product of, you know, a lot of ideation, a lot of thinking about how it scales, how it translates into different mediums. But what you're saying is it actually it is just stoned lonely lockdown. Yes, at its at its start, but uh, doing it and how much fun I had doing it and the way people responded to it and also, I actually I've talked to my um, <laughs> therapist over over the last year a lot about I have a very poor perception of my own uh, work ethic and self discipline. Well, you you, you I think, think you underrate it? I yeah I I. I constantly think I have very poor work ethic and I'm lazy <laughs> and to an extent I, I I still believe that to be true even though I'm being coached out of saying that about myself um, but there is inside of all of it I think it's because 
I don't ascribe the same value to the work I do that I enjoy to the idea of like grinding through something that is hard. Yeah. And but also, I mean, if you look at you know, uh, my mind is blowing me crazy. There's large chunks of that which required you wandering around the city stoned, just <laughs> kind of being bored effectively. Yeah. To, to, you know, and you can't just force that. Like it, it has to have a certain well, no, looseness to yeah. it. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of, it's acknowledging, you know, I think it's, it, it's beyond my own belief that deliberately being bored or, you know, living the life I do. It's a very hard thing to explain to your parents. And it's a very hard thing to explain to my parents. But now that they see, you know, the, the mum and dad came to a recording of the Spelling Bee TV show. They weren't going to. I was like, I think you'll like it. And they were like, oh, no, we'll see it on TV. And then my little sister, Annie, was like, I think outside of the family thread or my communication with us, like, hey, um, this is like, you know, this is a pretty big deal for Guy. I think it would be nice if you came up and checked it out. And so they came up and they watched the records. And it was like it, the, there was pride emanating from their very body. It was the most excited and prideful I've, I've seen them, you know, in a way that was so, it, it made me quite emotional because they've, they like that I do stand up and they like that I'm following my dream, but it is unusual to them. And also I think, um, you know, they paid for a, a private education. So I think maybe it's that it looks like they're actually getting return on investment by me pulling apart words. They're like, yes, it was worth it. <laughs> My man can spell. Yeah. Uh, so beyond all that, you know, which is lovely. Yeah. There's also the, the thing that struck me, like immediately on watching it and knowing a little bit of how the television industry worked was like, oh, this is IP, mm. you know, and that. You know, I'm assuming that uh, Alex Horn lives quite well. Yes. And, you know, at what point do, do you start to think, actually, this, this, is, this is a fun thing to do, this is a good yeah. live show, this might even be a New Zealand TV show, to that next layer of this thing can be bundled and, and, and that original idea of the Olympics of comedy could, you know, yeah. my shorthand, could, could really be a thing. Well, so I was lucky enough to do Taskmaster New Zealand and I was already a Taskmaster fan. And in terms of looking at panel shows, you know, inside of New Zealand, um, I mean, what the, the magic of Taskmaster and the vet, I think that what, what makes it such a juggernaut is that it's timeless, is that someone can discover Taskmaster at any point. They could go back to the very beginning, watch a season from 10 years ago and fall in love with it in a way that is impossible for any topical panel show. Like you cannot go back. You're not going to go, unless you're sort of, you know, doing it ironically or as some weird research project or you're a total diehard, you can't go back and watch seven days episodes from 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, so like, you know, Iraq war jokes Exactly. And yeah. so, you know, the idea of it existing in a vacuum, is so, and I've I've always thought that with stand-up comedy as well, which is something I, I sort of semi-lifted from Norm McDonald, which is like his material is non-topical. All of it's meant to be able to exist in a vacuum. Like a, a true timeless joke is something that can be funny 50 years from now. And so if, you're, if your jokes are all responsive, you know, you can really capture the zeitgeist and build a huge audience that way and whatever, but it, the, the value diminishes over time. And so I've always been obsessed by that idea. Taskmaster fulfills that brief. With Spelling Bee, I thought words are timeless. It's a universal access point. Everyone has a connection. And... You know, it means that people can watch these. These can be like historical, not artifacts, but like someone can watch all of those original spelling bees are still on my YouTube channel. Any, I get people messaging me about them all the time. 
being like, this should be a TV show. And I'm like, well, you got no idea. <laughs> Keep watching. I, and so I don't know when exactly it happened, but doing Taskmaster, that was the best working experience outside of doing stand-up in my life. And I sort of thought, I tried to basically gamify spelling and push a spelling bee through the Taskmaster um, for, format or, you know, concept. And it's hard to say when exactly the idea that it, it was IP or it was something that could be much greater than just this little thing I'm doing dawned on me. I think it was over time, the more I was finessing it and the more, you know, and this goes back to the work ethic thing, but I think it's when I have a natural inclination to work on something, I don't think it's work, even though obviously it is. And over all of that time, I was like, this is actually, when I was trying to get it mounted as a TV show here in New Zealand, I was pretty like, I, I, you know, when I got pushed back very gently a few times and I was like, you, how can you not see, like, I've got, I've got something here. I've got something that you should really want here. And yeah. like, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't have to be limited to New Zealand or one set. Like this is. Well, even down to like the, the staging and the, there's, there's a whole bunch of elements to it that, that feel like you can port them to give it a very distinctive identity. The, yeah. And I was very lucky in that I got to have a huge amount of creative. I was the showrunner of that of it so I got a huge amount of creative input and control over the way it looks and even the way it looks I think you know I, and this isn't to criticize anything this is just I was very fortunate to get to build something in my vision I think a lot of panel shows and a lot of current affairs tv have a very I don't know if modern is the right word for the aesthetic but well, there's an, a certain aesthetic that they all abide which well, is they're often shot in the same studio yeah and so you really have a relatively limited ability but, to actually impose any kind of visual language it's and it's very it's very right now and I don't think time is going to be kind to the current prevailing aesthetic and so I thought well you know if I want this show to exist in a vacuum if I pull an aesthetic from the past and also update it in certain ways and like, it was a very conscious choice that all of the, it wasn't going to be done on screens, like all of the props are material and physical, because I think I want someone to find this show in 20 years and and be like, when was that made? Well, it also means it's recognized, like if it's like a, a TikTok of it, it's yeah. going to be, you're going to very quickly go, okay, that's that thing. Yeah. You know? And again, that's something that Taskmaster has. And, you know, it, all of these, I, I never actively sat down and looked at the sort of mountain of decisions or creative, you know, like uh, creative decisions, I guess, that would have to be made to qualify all of this. But like sort of magpieing ideas and pulling all of this stuff together in disparate conversations and moments and then, you know, pushing it all together in the middle with a phenomenal team around me who I'm so grateful for. You know, I like it, what is most staggering to me about Spelling Bee is um, – how small the gap is between the exact show I dreamt of making and the show that we made. It's like, it's, it's like a percentage point. And that's crazy because this is a prime time, mm. like mainstream. It goes out at 7.30 on Thursdays on TV3. It's for everyone. Yeah. Like you, it's meant to be, you're meant to be able to watch it with your 11 year old. And I've had 11 year olds come to a comedy show in every single city I've done this year. Because of Spelling Bee. Yeah. So, and, so, where to from here? Like, are you, I don't know to what extent you can reveal this, but, you know, are you actively shopping this in overseas markets? And would you go with it? Like, for or what's the, you know, yeah. how, how much can you retain that level of control uh, while also becoming it's, an exporter? It's, uh, it's, it's interesting and new terrain for me. I've got no idea. I would love to talk to Alex Horn about how he did it with Taskmaster. Um, my... Dream, of course, would be to like the the logical the next logical stepping point in terms of trying to develop the format overseas would be taking it to Australia, 
And I think I am now enough of a um, known entity to Australian broadcasters and audiences that I would be able to host it over there. So that feels like a very clean sort of logical progression. Beyond that, um, you know, I think it would make a lot of sense. And it was made, you know, like modelled on certain parts of British comedy. And yeah, you so, can see they'd be making shows in that yeah. genre. Like I remember watching them as a kid growing up in yeah. the early 90s kind of thing. Uh, I mean, I would love to do that as well. But again, it's like my <laughs> still my, my primary ambition is to be funny. And the amount of uh, like back rubbing and uh, political conversation it probably requires to facilitate this thing moving forward is not inside of my wheelhouse or specific sphere of interest. And so uh, I have, you know, I, I the, Kevin and Co, the production company, and also Beck um, facilitate, they have relationships with people and um, I sort of have belief in them and, and hope for the best. I am certainly not, uh, the main way I'm driving the idea of this show working in these places, I've taken it to, I did like five in Melbourne in a 350 seat room this year and they were absolutely electric, like it was crazy. And I was getting the best comedians who were in the festival to come and do them. Did you, did you and have and there people in the audience? Yeah, or? and there are producers and like, and networks are coming to watch those. And so th the way I see my responsibility inside of this is like, Show them an undeniable product and yeah. and make and them just want focus it. On that. And that's and that's the stuff that's inside of my control, you know. And that's a big one. That's across all the facets of my career has always been, because um, you it's inevitably you get you, you know you don't get things you want and people you don't get opportunities you think you might be owed at certain points and it's like you just all you can reduce it to is like well okay how funny can I be like you know all all you can do you can spend that it's just a it's a very boring truism that don't get better get better but like you can spend all of this energy being frustrated and venting or whatever but it's like well what if I became so funny it was literally impossible for someone not to to say not yes. to fuck you yeah um so we're conscious that you've got a, we've both got dueling <laughs> outs here. I'm yeah, my, pretty I sure mine, mine was just a little bit was before, a minute before yours. yours from what you said, I think. Yeah, but just from memory. But um, I want to talk just before we do go about two, two things, one of which has ended and another of which you sort of have, have talked about kind of feeling like you have left behind or, or, or outgrown, overgrown mm. so, somehow, um, which is Snort and, and The Basement, both of which had enormous roles in, in being uh, sort of venues, institutions that, that kind of allowed you to grow as, as, a, yeah. as a comic. Um, yeah, I mean, Snort, which Snort, which is an improvised comedy show that was uh, started 10 years ago with a lot of my generation of comedians um, and its home was The Basement. Uh, so yeah, that was Donna Brookbanks, Eli Matthewson and Eddie Dever basically started Snort from Christchurch, having been part of the scared scriptless with the court jesters they saw, you know, and we were all pretty young with a lot of time on our hands and still, uh, very ambitious, not to say the ambitions dimmed, but like, you know, um, to give away every Friday night of a year was not the same sort of trade that it is now. And so... The initial run was meant to be four weeks through September uh, and all the shows were full and it was really fun and there was a certain alchemy or chem natural chemistry that formed. And I think, I, I don't know if Snore asked or if the basement extended an offer for it to keep going. And so 
it's sort of just like turbocharged a lot of our creative relationships with each other and also, you know, formed this umbrella under which we could all as a group introduce ourselves, but individually inside of that group introduce ourselves to audiences. And you're just working out, you know, yeah. like you're going to get funnier by just doing it over and over, over again. And over and, and over, forever. Yeah. Uh, and so at the same time, this was, Snort started in, I think it was, it must have been 2014, which is the same year I did my first solo show. Um, it was the year after I'd come back to New Zealand, I think at the end of 2013, uh, after I spent a year doing stand-up comedy in Canada. And so I'd come back and I thought I was good, but I still couldn't get gigs really. And um, all of this stuff was sort of happening simultaneously and it just propelled. And I, so the first show I did was actually that year that you came was at the Basement Theatre, you know, and so I felt comfortable there because that was a performance space I'd spent a lot of time, you know, in and um, felt, rightly or wrongly, perhaps a sense of ownership of or at least creative kin a kinship to. And so I did my first show there. Um... The next year, actually, I did. I was still doing snort all the time, but I did my show at Monte Cristo, which was a yeah, venue I, I, I ran with. Uh, well, Jesse Griffin was sort of the creative spearhead, but it was with Jesse, Tim Bat, Brendan Green, and myself. I was very much fourth fiddle in that group, but um, for two years, set up this sort of independent venue during the comedy festival, which was amazing and probably a whole different conversation that you should have with Jesse because uh, he's got a great brain and sort of, you know, he's also. Wilson Dixon is um, like one of the funniest comedy creations yeah. ever in New Zealand. You know, him and Jackie are just a, a powerhouse together. Jackie Van Beek's his, his wife. But um, that's by the by. And so, yeah, over the years, sort of developing my voice and feeling very at home and welcome and like the, the basement was then reaching out and there were uh, stand-up comedy nights running in the studio on Friday and it felt like a real hotbed for not just the people inside of Snort but also by extension, you know, other people who weren't part of Snort or who were, you know, half a generation behind us comedically to come through and form their voices. Uh, and it, it was, you know, it was, it was amazing. It felt like a real, it felt like a real creative home. And um, as it, as it grew or whatever, I don't, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, uh, when things change, but at some point, you know, you get older. I guess it's every day, but you know, we traditionally into market by every year, <laughs> and uh, it sort of it's like it became harder for the people who were originally all doing the shows together to all be able to do the shows, and also, you know, when we started, Snort was um, was almost in a different cultural climate. Like it was a predominantly a bunch of white you know, improvisers and comedians. And uh, we sort of started to reckon with that as we grew. And so the cast grew. And the fact that it happening weekly while the culture is moving, you've got this thing that's solid and having that having to respond to a culture which changed dramatically yeah. uh, through that time is really fascinating. And like we brought in uh, Julie Zhu, who's still our fantastic producer, who's also like, you know, and um, helped you know, grow the company and move it forward. And it just, every year we wound up having these meetings where we were saying like, well, what's the future of Snort and what do we want to do? And we never blooded it into a full-blown business. We didn't start like teaching improv underneath the banner of Snort the way that they did with UCB in America or whatever. And it sort of just became, um, I mean, it's still going and it's still amazing. And it's still sold out every Friday. You can go to the basement still and you can go and see Snort. But at some point during all of this, my own relationship to it, was uh, it was something I didn't want to be driving or spearheading or like I still wanted to 
basically I wanted everything I wanted and to not have to do anything I didn't want to do. So I just want to be able to show up when I was available and do the show. Yeah, you're like a bench player rather than a starter at this exactly. point. Exactly. And uh, it's sort of, it's, 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 a, it's a hard thing to articulate, but um, at a certain point it felt like, even though we're still developing and growing new improvised and there's this phenomenal new wave of comedic and improv talent coming through, it, it didn't feel like we were creating anything new or challenging ourselves or pushing it forward. And so it's sort of, it's a bit of a, you know, piss or get off the pot or whatever the turn of phrases where it's like, you know, if Snort just continues to occupy that 10 PM space in the basement every Friday, it's blocking generations of talent mm. and the necessary new voices. And so 10 years is a very beautiful moment to demarket and say, look at what we built. And for all of us to be able to, to move on and inside of that as I've grown older as well and I guess my comedic homes have moved around and become more you know uh, transient the basement has developed as it doesn't feel to me and I'm probably wrong but like the, a comedic home the way it did it feels like it's more of a, a, a developmental theater space I, I there was a period where I felt like I was right in the middle of the zeitgeist of what was happening at the basement and um I don't know if it's comedically or culturally or the fact I'm just old now, but it's, um, I certainly, I still love performing there and I love watching shows there, but it, it, you know, it feels like a nostalgia kick when I go back there less than the place I go where I know I'm going to run into a friend and we can have a beer. It's, um, I think I'm describing aging. I think you are, but you know, but, and growing. It's, yeah. uh, no, look, honestly, it's been, um, it's been a really cool conversation and, uh, you know, I think that, like I just really like the way that you sort of have approached your career and kind of and observe the sort of that tension between having to kind of forge a path but also try and maintain the that kind of artistic core and mm. and, and view it as a positive that tension rather than being kind of defeated or, or, or frustrated by it. Yeah. So um, anyway, I think I've got to get to something. So yeah. Uh, oh shit! Is that the time? <laughs> Oh, dang it. I'm so sorry. I have to leave, like, right now. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for coming up, Guy. It's been awesome. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.